Father in heaven, I ask that you would shine the light of your truth through your word now. I pray that your spirit would be at work. I ask that you would build us up as your word says that you will. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of Exodus, and hopefully we've all been thinking of Exodus for a while now, two images, I think, stand out with great clarity. One of them is Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. That's the climax of that famous movie with Charlton Heston, right? As the end of the movie, they receive the law, and it seems like the story ends there. Like, okay, they're good. They know what to do. End of story. But in reality, that's actually only halfway through the book of Exodus. The other image that I think is very clear is that incredibly dramatic moment when God parts the Red Sea and the whole nation of Israel walks through on dry ground. So there's two great pictures, one of God giving the law and one of the redemption that the whole nation experienced. But what we miss when we only think of those two images is that the end of the book shows the people of God in worship. And so the the story of the Exodus, the story of God's redemption, is not just that God miraculously and powerfully saved, and it's not just that God taught His people what was right and what was wrong, it's that God lived among His people, that He dwelled with Him, that He lived with them, and so their redemption was accomplished so that God could live in their midst. Next week, I will preach the final message on this series in Exodus. And if you have been with us for the whole time, you have seen with us the the story of God redeeming His people so that they can worship Him with all of its highs and all of its lows. And this week, we will see the people of God working to build the tabernacle where they will worship and where God's glory will dwell and I entitled this message, Can We, Can We as, first, as, excuse me, as 21st Century Christians Complete God's Work? And I chose that title because both Israel and our church, and in fact every church, has been given a job to do. And you may think that the job that Israel received and the job that we have is very different. But... but If you've glanced at this passage that I'm about to preach through, you may notice that it's long, and you may notice that there are a lot of details about the tabernacle. Don't mentally check out because it seems so foreign and it seems so different. Do not lose the forest for the trees when you look through the last few chapters of Exodus. Israel is building a tabernacle so that God can live among them, and God's church is a temple where God lives among His people. Israel was commanded to build the tabernacle, and we are commanded to spread the gospel of Jesus as He builds His church. And as you heard uh, Steve just read from Ephesians, that the church is built up as each member of the body of Christ functions with the gifts God gives him or her until we all arrive at maturity and the whole body is built together in love. And you can tell where God is 
when strange and different people manage to love each other. Sinners living with a holy God is the amazing theme that runs through the book of Exodus. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to point out how Israel completed the work that God gave them to do. And so look with me to begin with at my first point this morning, how the Spirit equips His people. The Spirit equips His people. And notice with me verses 30 through chapter 36, verse 7. We're starting at the end of, of chapter 35, verse 30. Read with me. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, son of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahesmech, of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. The most important thing to notice in these verses is that the Spirit equips the people to do the work. Now they are building a literal tabernacle, a literal place where God's glory would dwell. And the Spirit equipped them in two important ways. First, He gives people the ability to create. And the Bible describes how the Lord put things into their minds and gave them skills. Remember, these are slaves. They have spent their lives building bricks for Egyptians. They have no skill in in metalworking. They have no skill in this kind of artistic construction. And so the Spirit supernaturally gives them the ability to do the task that God has called them to do. And so, number one, he equips them to be able to create what he's commanded them. And second, you don't see it as much in this passage. You do see the amazing generosity that people have as they contribute the materials for the tabernacle. But if you notice just a chapter earlier, as they're taking that commandment and that, the, the offering, as they're taking the free will offering, that God moves their hearts 
to be generous. So the generosity you see at the beginning of chapter 36 is a result of the Spirit of God working in their hearts to make them generous. So there are two things that the Spirit does. The Spirit empowers them for the work so that they are able to build the tabernacle. And secondly, he empowered the people so that they felt generous so that they gave. And I believe that is exactly what the Spirit of God does for us as a church today. Steve read from Ephesians 4, as I already mentioned, which describes how the whole church is given gifts for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ so that we grow to maturity. When Paul says that we are to grow to maturity, he means that we are to know the truths of Scripture, knowledge is part of maturity, and that we are to be filled with the Spirit so that our behavior is transformed. So a mature Christian is not just an educated Christian. A mature Christian is someone who behaves in a way that is led by the Spirit of God. And Paul describes that as being full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And God gives gifts of speaking to some people, and He gives gifts of service to others. And all of us are to use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. So the Spirit also makes us generous so that we give financially to support the work of the ministry. So our work and Israel's work depend on the Spirit of God. It begins with God doing the work, and we still look to God to do a work here. Now, if you've noticed where this chapter is going, describing the building of the tabernacle and the priestly garments, we have already seen some of those things. So rather than read verse by verse everything in the next two chapters, I want to point out a few verses in particular and give you a big picture of what's happening here and remind you of the significance that it has for us. So to begin with, you see the people actually doing the work starting in verse 8. And I'm going to point out just the things that they make. Look with me at verse 8. And it says, And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. Then in verse 14, you see there's a tent that goes over the tabernacle. So you remember when we discussed the tabernacle, it's just a sacred tent. It is a movable temple because they have not settled into the land yet. So as they move through the wilderness, they take this temple where God's glory dwells with them. And so the first thing, they make the, ta- the tabernacle. Then verse 14, they make the tent that goes over the tabernacle with all of its frames and all of its bars, and they are beautiful and they are overlaid with gold. Then verse 35 describes how he makes the veil. And you remember that God's glory dwells within the tabernacle, but sinful people, even as they obey the law and follow the law, are not able to go into the presence of God's glory. God warns them again and again that His holiness is so awesome that they would die if they experienced it. And so there is a veil that covers the glory of God so that sinners are able to serve Him. Chapter 37, verse 1, describes the Ark of the Covenant, and it says that he made the Ark of the Covenant. He made the Ark of Acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. It is an oversized coffee table covered in gold containing the Ten Commandments, 
with a mercy seat on top. Here is the huge thing that we have to remember. If you can get the picture in your head, just imagine a really ornate, beautiful box with angels on top. It's literally overlaid all with pure gold. Here's why it matters. They place, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. That covenant is that sacred promise that Israel has with God that they will abide by His laws. And they take the Ten Commandments, the two stone tablets, and they place them in that box. It is a symbol of all that they have promised to do as part of being God's people. And on top of that box, they place something called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the angels sit on top of the law. And those angels, if you remember, again, I know this sounds super weird. If you remember, those angels are a sort of living throne for the presence of God. And so what the ark is doing is it is saying that God dwells with the people that follow the law, that keep his commandments. And that problem is that no one is able to do it. And so the the top of the ark is called a mercy seat because we depend on mercy for the presence of God. We still depend on mercy for the presence of God in our church. And what the, the people of Israel do is once a year on the Day of Atonement, They would make sacrifices and take some of the blood of the sacrifices and they would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And so what you have inside the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant is you have God's perfect holiness and moral character preserved in the law. And then you have a symbol of His mercy as blood is sprinkled over it so that sinners like me and sinners like you can come into the presence of a holy God. This is showing ultimately what Jesus did for all of us. What Jesus as our high priest did when he took his own blood and he offered it in the heavenly tabernacle for sinners like me and sinners like you. The good news of the gospel is that God is holy and in his holiness he will punish sin and yet in his steadfast love and mercy... He provides a way for sinners to be forgiven through the blood of Christ. And that's what's happening in the tabernacle. That there is an earthly representation of what heaven is like with all its beauty and all its glory and all its grandeur. And it's just a picture, but it should give you a sense of the awesomeness of God and of His incredible holiness. Outside the veil... They also have a number of other things that describe what it's like to be in fellowship with this good God. So once the sacrifices have been made, once the glory is there, what does it mean to exist as God's people? Well, in verse 10, it describes the table for bread, and they would continually make offerings of bread, not because God is hungry, but as a sort of visible prayer that number one says, thank you, Lord, for providing for us. And God did provide for them again and again. And number two is a sort of reminder that says, Lord, we depend on you for provision. If you don't provide, we will not make it. So there's the bread of the presence in verse 10 of chapter 37. Then verse 17, the lampstand that demonstrated God is eternal light. In the presence of God is light. The beginning of John's gospel describes Jesus as the light of the world, and it's by that light that we are able to know what is good and true and beautiful. And so in the presence of God, there is light. It is eternal light. That lamp was never to go out. And then verse 25 of 37 describes the altar of incense. And you remember when we went through this before, we said that incense, that fragrant aroma, is a symbolic kind of prayer 
that constantly goes up. Prayers of worship, prayers of praise, prayers of petition, where we ask God for things. And so in the presence of God is the ability to come and ask Him for things. Then the anointing oil was made, which describes that everything that God provided for them in the tabernacle needed to be dedicated for its sacred purpose. And that oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the fact that the Spirit was on them for this work and was among them because of the tabernacle. And as they obeyed the Lord, they enjoyed His presence. Then, outside the tent, there's the altar for burnt offering. Now, once a year, they made offerings for the whole nation, for the Day of Atonement. But that altar was where any Israelite could come and and make a sacrifice, whether he needed to because he'd violated the law in a particular way, and so he understood the responsibility he had to go and then make sacrifices, or for any given situation. It didn't even necessarily need to be a sinful situation. There were sacrifices required constantly so that sinful people could enjoy the presence of God. So there's an altar There is a giant altar. It's seven feet by seven feet. You can think of it as the size of a king-sized bed. That altar says there has to be a price paid for sin so that God can dwell among his people. And then in front of the altar, there's a bronze basin, a giant bath where, where water was kept so that the priests could cleanse themselves just from everyday dirt and grime so that they could offer the sacred sacrifices. And then finally, the last thing that's described, as far as the tabernacle is concerned, is the court that goes all the way around it. And the dimensions can seem overwhelming. If you remember when we went through this, I said, basically, the tabernacle is about the size of the, the, a third of our gymnasium. And the entire courtyard would be about another 50 feet beyond it. So if you walk into our gymnasium, you can imagine about the size that this would be, and you can think through walking into a place where God's glory dwelled. You can think of the beauty, but don't forget all of the things that made it possible, the washing, the sacrifices. And even then, you could not go into the presence of God in a personal way, because only a priest was allowed to go into the inner tent, and even a priest could not go into the Holy of Holies except once a year and only with the proper sacrifices. And it was a sacred and awesome and terrifying responsibility because he always ran the risk of not doing something as he should, and there was always a danger that he would die in his service to the people. This should give us great pause The writer of Hebrews says to us that we have received greater and better promises. And so he doesn't say, relax, guys, life is great. He says, we should tremble because the word we have received is so much greater. The blood that covers our sins is the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God. And as a result of that, Our faith is something that we must take with absolute seriousness. Our forgiveness is not something trivial. Our forgiveness was bought at an incredible price by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have to take this with great seriousness. Scripture continues in chapter 39 and describes the priestly garments. And if you remember, I described the priesthood when we went through the section earlier that says... There are, there are dedicated robes that are, that are 
kept pure, that are anointed for the work of sacred ministry. There's the ephod, which is a really bizarre word, but it, it has stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on them, and those stones would have been put on the shoulders of the high priest so that when he goes before the Lord, in a very literal way, he is bearing the weight of the nation. His job is to represent the entire nation before God as he goes about and makes his sacrifices and his offerings. The ephod also had a a special vest that had a little plate on it with 12 jewels, and each of those jewels, some of them were rubies, one of them was a diamond, they're very beautiful, and each of them had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on it, and again, symbolically showed that the priest was representing the people, and also as a reminder of how precious the people of God are to God. And then finally, in verse 30 of chapter 39, there's an engraved plate that would go on the turban of the high priest that said, holy to the Lord, which was a reminder that the priest was completely dedicated to the service of God. So there are two huge things that happen in Israel so that they can worship the Lord that God can dwell in them. Number one is they had a place, and number two is they had a priesthood. And when I preached on that in the past, I said, our church needs to recognize that the place is less important But God is still building a temple where his glory dwells. And so the church is massively important. You cannot diminish the importance of being part of a church if you want to experience the power and presence of God in your life. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian who has a great walk with the Lord and doesn't need anyone else. That does not happen. The reality is God is building a body where his glory dwells. That's what Ephesians says. You cannot do that by yourself. And then I also talked a little bit about the reality that we are all called to be priests. We are all called to be dedicated and holy and serve the Lord, representing other people to God in prayer and representing God to other people, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news. And yes, we all have different gifts, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But the reality is, the place and the people are still very relevant for us and for our church. And my prayer is that as we come together as a church, that we would be seeking the presence of God here, and that we would be faithful as His people to serve Him, just as the priest was called to sacred service, just as he was called to holiness, just as he was called to purity, that we would recognize our sacred calling and fulfill that as well. Here's the thing. Everyone, I hope, is asking, why does this have to exist twice in the book of Exodus? Why is there so much redundancy? And I mentioned in the past couple of weeks, Israel has a huge moral failure. So as God has described what will happen, and over and over again, he says, you shall make, you shall make, as he gives instructions so that they would make this, then Israel has this colossal moral failure where they fall into idolatry. And now... As you see the same exact plan laid out, it's a reminder that forgiven people can do the work of God, that there is grace, that there is hope, that there is confidence that in the future we can do the work of God even though we continue to fail, and even though we continue to sin, there is massive hope. But here's one thing, and and I hope that as you read and study, and I hope that as I preach through books, you read them with me, 
one of the most important things that you can do as you read the Bible is to read it actively, to read it with an ink pen, to notice differences. And I want to give you the biggest difference between these chapters and just a few chapters ago where God says in many ways almost exactly the same thing. It comes down to verbs. It comes down to verbs. If you loved English class, you'll be right on page with me. If you hated it, bear with me. Bear with me. This matters. And this kind of attention to detail is so helpful as you want to know what the Word of God says to you and for you. And as we want to know what it says to us and for our church. The greatest difference between this passage and the earlier description of the tabernacle and the priestly garments is in the verbs. Before, they were all future imperative verbs. It had not been done. God said, you shall. It's in the future. And it's an imperative. It's a command. He said, you shall make. It gave them a mission. It told them what to do. An imperative is always a command. Now, as you read through this chapter carefully, every one of those verbs has changed from a future imperative to a past tense indicative. It's not a command anymore, and it's not in the future. It's done, and they did it. God says, you shall make, and now it says, they made. By the mercy of God and the power of His Spirit, they did the work that God gave them. And this is celebrated in verse 32 to 42. So look with me, we're in chapter 39 now, at the end of the chapter. And read with me what it says as they complete this work. It says, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished... And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the covering of tan ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils, the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons for their service as priests according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses so the people of Israel had done all the work and Moses saw all the work and behold they had done it as the Lord had commanded so they had done it and then Moses blessed them some of us reading through Exodus might have felt intimidated just reading that passage can you imagine how intimidated the people of God would have felt when he called them to put this into practice and to do it And now recognize that by the power of God's Spirit, they had done it and that they are blessed because of the work that they did. In short, the answer to the question, can we complete God's work, is an emphatic, yes, we can do what God has required of us. Israel completed the mission that God gave them and so can we, but there are a few things that we have to remember. Number one, you cannot complete God's work for you apart from Christ. No Israelite 
could act as though he could just walk into the Holy of Holies and enjoy the presence of God. In fact, Israelites try to worship in ways that are not authorized, and they all die. We talked a little bit in our catechism question about the reality that not all are saved. You cannot enjoy the blessings of God apart from Christ and believe that you will one day enter into His presence and enjoy Him forever. You may temporarily enjoy some of His good things. That's why the question mentioned common grace, that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In His goodness and His kindness, He does give good things. But we must never confuse His mercy and grace for a sort of lackadaisical uncaring about sin. The Scripture is very clear that God will punish sin. And for believers and unbelievers, there's no place for complacency. And so I would urge you and beg you, as all of Exodus has showed the holiness of God and the danger of rejecting what He has given, we cannot complete God's work apart from Christ. And it's my prayer that everyone here would look to Christ in faith and trust that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, that we can have forgiveness because of the work of Christ. And that as you talk to people who don't believe that, that the most important thing that you can tell them is that they need to look to Christ, that Jesus Christ is the most amazing person in the world, and that the good news of the gospel gives incredible hope. And so the most fundamental thing for the work of the church is the work of Christ. Number two... You cannot complete God's work for you on your own. You cannot complete God's work for you on your own. You need to be serving in a church or sent out by a church. Some people feel like, you know what, I I just do what God calls me to do on my own. And you maybe even point to, to a foreign missionary who can attend a regular church because he's in the middle of nowhere and he doesn't have a church to attend. But let me remind you of this. Even missionaries who are geographically isolated are serving with churches who support them financially and through prayer. Paul made it clear that the work that he did as a missionary was accomplished through the prayers of the churches that supported him. So do not think that you can function on your own. You can serve through prayer, but do not think that you can pray without fellowship. Paul constantly wrote to churches who supported him so that they would know how to pray for him. And you and I ought to pray very specifically, not just generally, for the people within our church and for our missionaries. And to do that, we have to be in the kind of fellowship where we are honest with one another so we can pray in an informed way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant about the sufferings that I have. And he is very open and he is very honest about how his ministry is going. He doesn't give bright, cheerful, missionary prayer letters so that the church thinks everything is perfect all the time. That's the temptation. When someone asks how you're doing in Christ, you always say, oh, great. Sometimes that's not true. And when it's not true, we need to allow people to know so that they can pray for us, so that we can serve one another. Our service shouldn't just be prayer. It should also be acts of service in a number of different ways. And it should also be ministries of teaching so that we can grow up together in the knowledge of what God has done and what God is doing. We cannot complete God's work without a clear understanding 
of how each of us is responsible to accomplish it. And there is a real lack of clarity, I think, for most of us in the church because we don't clearly identify our mission as a church and we don't clearly understand how each of us should be part of it. So let me take a second and clarify our mission. Number one, God has called us to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number two, to disciple those who believe. So our work is not done when someone is saved. Our work has actually just started. Through this mission, Paul says that all of us are being built into a holy temple in the Lord, that God dwells with his people, and as we fulfill his mission, this temple is built. Discipleship involves education as well as obedience. And at the end of every task we complete as a church, every event we hold, we need to ask, did we spread the gospel and did we help believers mature? And if we can't answer yes to either of those questions, we are failing in our mission. And this is not only true for us as a church. Parents, this is true. And grandparents, this is true in your home. Are you teaching your kids? Are you using a catechism? You don't have to use all 52 questions. Are you at a basic level making sure that your kids know what the gospel is? Can you ask your four and five-year-old, what is the gospel, and have them respond? Do they know what Jesus did for them? Do they know what saving faith is? Do they know what God requires in terms of the law? Do they know what obedience is by the word of God? If you are not educating your family, you are not fulfilling the call of God on your life. And if you are not serving in the church, you are not fulfilling the call of God on your life. Now here's the thing. You might think of the task that we've got, thinking of evangelism, thinking of seeing unsaved people come to know Christ. You might feel like it's impossible to save people and help Christians grow. And you may be convinced that our own church cannot grow or that it will not grow. I have heard a lot from people who are very pessimistic about the future of the church because millennials and Generation Z are more hostile to faith than their parents and grandparents. There are tons of articles all over the internet about how to reach millennials. And there's all kinds of anxiety and fear that this next generation is just going to drop the ball. Here's the thing. If you feel like our work is impossible, you know what? I have some bad news for you. It is utterly impossible. You are absolutely right. It is impossible for you and I to save anyone. That is why the work depends on God. God has given us His Holy Spirit. That's why prayer is so urgent. The work we have to do depends on God. That's why we pray that He would raise dead hearts up to life. You know what the good news is? Our God can do impossible things. He is the God who raises the dead. And I wanted to mention this. Did you know that Christianity is flourishing and thriving in China, a communist country that is officially atheistic? If we look around the United States and feel like there's no hope for the future of the church, imagine living in a country where your pastor is thrown into jail for 30 years because he has a physical copy of the Bible. From a human perspective, it's impossible. And yet the church has grown and thrived. Did you know that by the mercy of God, there are now millions of Christians all over the continent of Africa, that the church has grown by leaps and bounds in just what a generation ago was the continent where people said, there's no hope, it's so spiritually dark. 
The church there has grown at a faster pace than the church in America has grown. Right now, there are Christians being slaughtered in Nigeria for their faith. Hundreds of Christians are being murdered because they are not Muslim. And this type of persecution is not new. It happened in Egypt just a few years ago. And here's the thing, the church is growing anyway. From a human perspective, it seems impossible and unlikely. But we serve a God who does the impossible. The power of God has overcome impossible obstacles for the glory of Christ in your lifetime and in my lifetime. God has planted His church in bone-dry, rock-hard soil, and it grew. Do you think that He can't do it here? Has God stopped working miracles? Is our condition at First Baptist Church of Holly worse than death itself? I believe the answer to that is no. And we can do the work God has called us to do, not because of our own strength or ability, but because we serve a God who can raise the dead to life. We can preach Jesus and we can make disciples because we serve a living God who will build His church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to You completely depending on You. And we ask that You would work miracles in our own hearts. Forgive us for despair. Forgive us for doubt. Forgive us for complacency. Forgive us for our own idolatry. Lord, I ask that Your Spirit would do a work in each of us. Make us faithful to serve You. And Lord, we will give You all the glory as we see You answer our prayers and as we see You work miracles because we know it depends on you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.